Good morning. Today's reading is from Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we say that phrase each Sunday morning, you might think, why do we do that at Bethany Church? It's, it becomes a routine, something we do. Um, but I don't want it to be for us. This morning we're coming to a passage that really gets to the heart of, what is this, this, this book we open every week? What is this, this, these uh, books and chapters and verses and message of this Bible that the Lord has given us? And it's the Word of God. And so when we say that on a Sunday morning, we're acknowledging again that this isn't just something that happened to land in our lap hundreds of years, thousands of years after Christ lived. No, this is, this is God's word to us. So thanks be to God for it. Thanks be to God for it. We've been working our way through the letter to the Thessalonians um, this fall in our series, Living Today While Longing for Tomorrow. And this morning, we're going to continue with the passage, our message uh, entitled, Welcoming God's Word. It was Martin Luther who said, I simply taught that man that did so much in church history and life of writing and translating the Bible and preaching. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. I did nothing, he said. I let the Word do its work. When we welcome God's word into our lives, surprising and transformational things happen. It does its work, as Martin Luther said. This morning, we're going to look at Paul's thankful heart. He's, he's ongoing in his thankfulness for this church as he encouraged the Thessalonians to continue welcoming the word into their collective life together, the word that unified them, the word that fortified them, the word that transformed them and, and turned them into a people who would stand strong against hostile persecution because there was a common story they were living in together, a common story. You already might be thinking, do we need another, do we need another sermon on, on the word of God? I mean, we're, not, we're a Bible-believing church, Right? What could we possibly say fresh about this? Do we need this? Let me show you for a moment we do. We do need this. You and I need this. As A.W. Tozer who, who said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is really one of the most important things about you. He said our worship is based off of uh, the worshipers entertaining thoughts about God that are either low thoughts or really big, grand, high thoughts. He said it was the most important thing about us. What we think and take into our lives about God is really important. Unless anybody think you're not a theologian in this room, it was late R.C. Sproul who said, everyone's a theologian, whether they realize it or not. Churchgoers, non-churchgoers, Christians, those who don't follow Christ, everyone's a theologian because everybody's got thoughts about God, whether they believe in him or not. Everyone's got some view of who God is, what he's like, some view of humanity and what it means to, to live the good life as a human and what awaits us in the future. But there was some, a study that came out this week, and I want to highlight and point out a few of the 
responses to this study that uh, Ligonier Ministries, which was the ministry of the late R.C. Sproul in connection with Lifeway, each year puts out their findings from a survey they call the State of Theology. The State of Theology. And they interviewed uh, just the general population, but also interviewed evangelicals, which they defined with a pretty good definition that you and I would look at the five points they had and said, yeah, that's a good definition of what an evangelical could be. And I wanted to start by just looking at a couple, about five or so of the responses that, uh, that came from evangelicals and their views uh, about the word and different things. So let's take a look at a couple of them, just to orient you there. Um, so we got the year there and the question at the top, everyone's born innocent in the eyes of God. And so the right would be an agreement. And then the left of the slide would be more towards disagree within the middle, not sure or Slightly agree, slightly disagree. So the question is, everyone born innocent in the eyes of God? 65% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. That's a lot. Or, or mildly agreed, so any of the blue. That's a lot of people. Let's look at another one. God accepts the worship of all religions, including, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Uh, you see from 2016, it's gone up from 48% to over half of evangelicals responded that God accepts all forms of worship. That's over half. Let's go to another one. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43%. 43% of evangelicals responded. And Ligonier and Lifeway are really reputable resources or sources. Uh, let's go to another one. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Slightly better on this one, but still a quarter of evangelicals, 26%, said, you know, it's helpful, but not literally true. And then one more I think we got. We have one more? Yeah. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. 38% agreed with that one. That's, that's pretty staggering. It does matter that we keep on welcoming the word as God's people. It matters that we keep on welcoming it. If we do not, you can see by some of these numbers that it's distressing from the survey. Bad ideas have consequences, don't they? Real lives, lives of people we love and your own life is impacted by the place we give God's word in our life or don't. We're impacted by it. So we're going to unpack this short passage today, we're going to answer two questions. Two questions. Now that I've shown you that the word matters, right? Two questions together. So if you've got your outline there, you've got to have your Bible open to this First Thessalonians 2 pastor. Let's answer the first question. Here it is. How should we welcome the word of God? Because Paul says in this passage, he's thankful that they have received it. They have welcomed it. So how should we welcome the word of God? He's so thankful that they've welcomed it and received it. It's interesting as he starts this passage, he thanks God for the Thessalonians' ability to receive the word. He thanks God. He doesn't thank the Thessalonians for receiving it. He thanks God, meaning that Paul's thanking the one, that's God, who did something in the lives of these people. Paul knows that even though the gospel has, has taken root in these lives, it's God who's done a work in this local church, and so he thanks God that these people have received God's word. It's God who's done the work with his word. Paul knows by saying, thanking God for this thing that took place in the Thessalonian church that a prior work had been done in their lives, making it even possible for these people to welcome the word of God. 
We call it in theology, state of theology, we call that an illumination. The Spirit brings light to, illuminates, shines a light upon the truth of God's word and helps people understand it. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 2. He said, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. And so the Spirit does some work in a life to give someone spiritual eyes or a heart to see and hear and to believe that the Word is the Word of God. And so he thanks God they'd received the Word. Well, what was this Word of God that Paul was referring to here? Back up in chapter 1, verse 5, specifically, he said, it's the gospel. It is the gospel. It is the work of Jesus they had received. But even more, it would have begun to contain all that early apostolic tradition and teaching about Jesus, which was at this time just being recorded in the New Testament. But specifically, the gospel that he had preached to them. As he went to the synagogue on those multiple days and preached to the the Jews there. The Thessalonians had heard, verse 13 says, that the word preached by the apostles, but it wasn't just the words of the wisest, smartest, most intellectual Paul. They didn't hear them just as an uh, inspirational message from a great communicator. In fact, maybe Paul wasn't the best of communicator with his presence, some have thought, maybe. No, they welcomed the words in a unique way. And the answer to this question, how should we welcome the word of God, should inform and shape not only how we read God's word, but how we come to it when it's preached, when it's shared, when it's expounded, when it's taught accurately, when it's discussed in growth groups or in the gathering place after service. How we answer this question matters. You know, Paul doesn't ridicule the Thessalonians for believing that his words were God's words. You know, if, if that was not true, a good Jew like Paul would have said, whoa, 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 what are you doing? You, 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 you don't receive my words like God's words, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't rebuke them. He knew who he was as an, as an apostle. He knew what his message was, the gospel. And verse 13 says it was a message of God and about God. And they accepted it as such. A message from God and about God. The writer of the Hebrews warns, the readers to pay attention to the word so you don't drift away. So you don't drift away from the truth and drift away from God's people. He warns them because you and I, we never actually drift towards, towards more truth. We never actually drift towards more Christ-likeness, do we? We only drift away. Moving towards takes a a conscious welcoming, a receiving of the word as they did and an understanding it and applying it to your life. The word will do its work in you. The first word, maybe there's a couple words here that'll help us understand this. Two clarifying words I want to give us today. Well, we already said inspiration, so maybe it's three, but two more right now that will help us understand this, that the word is revealed by God. The first one is, is revelation. The word revelation means revealed by God. The Old Testament prophets would put it this way. Thus says the Lord. Thus saith the Lord in the, in the King James. Thus says the Lord. And Jesus himself, as we watch him in the New Testament, he received the entire Old Testament as the word of God. 
Jesus himself believed that the the scriptures that had been written and accumulated at that time was the word of God. Revelation, it means God's word to us. And it comes in two forms. It comes in two forms, God's revelation. The first one is general revelation, which we've got an abundance of living here in, in beautiful Oregon. We've got a, an abundance of that. It, it's God's creation. It's the beauty of the world. And it tells us something about his might and his power and that he exists. Someone made this. General revelation. But here's the second one. Special revelation. That's God's written word to us. So general revelation, the creation, we can see and know there's a God by looking outside at the trees, the mountains, and the the waterfalls, and the snow, and the rain, and the plants growing. But special revelation, which David speaks of in Psalm 19.7, he says the law of the Lord is perfect. That's his special revelation. Refreshes the soul. The statutes of the Lord, another word for his word, are trustworthy, making wise the simple. David says the word, the special, the, the, the general, special revelation, excuse me, is perfect. And it's trustworthy. And you can count on it. Revelation. That's our first word. Here's the second one. Inspiration. So revelation and inspiration is the second word to help us understand how we should receive it. Inspiration, this is God's word to the authors who then put it down inspired by God, on written, the written page. It's God working inspiration through the personalities of the human authors through, through Paul here, but Peter and John and, and, and others that wrote some of these New Testament letters and documents. Matthew and John with the Gospels, Mark and Luke, these, all these people that wrote these, these words, they were inspired by God. The Bible says. It's God working through the personalities, we said. The scriptures call it inspiration. Here's one of the verses where it does. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out. That's really inspired or spirated, the spirit. Breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Here's another one by Peter. Apostle Peter from 2 Peter No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, is the way he says it. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were inspired. doesn't necessarily mean it was dictated word for word. In some places it was. But what they wrote was the truth down to the very words as he inspired using their personalities, their vocabulary, and gave them the truth to record. We welcome it as as God's true word from a truth-telling God who revealed himself through the writers of Scripture. So what's the next way then? We should welcome the word of God. Let's take a look at it. We welcome it not only as the true word, but we welcome it as a story of Jesus, the Messiah. A story of Jesus, the Messiah. Have you looked back at Acts 17 yet to see what Paul's message to this early church was. That's where um, Luke records what Paul did as he was in Thessalonica, which is modern-day Greece, and what he did when he was there the first time and what he taught them. It was the story of Jesus woven through the Old Testament. Here's a couple of verses from that visit when Paul came to Thessalonica. 
And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving, here it is, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Messiah, is the Christ. That's what Paul did, or excuse me, what, what uh, Paul did on his first visit to this town. And the scriptures at that time that he explained to them were the Old Testament scriptures. Paul didn't have a copy of the New Testament. Why? He was writing it. They didn't have it yet. He was writing it. But they had the Old Testament. And Luke records that he took and opened the Old Testament. And from the Old Testament, he brought Christ forth to them and told them that he had to suffer and die and rise and that he is the Messiah. And that is how we welcome the word in an appropriate way as well. We welcome the word, but when we open it, we are going to find Jesus there. And if we don't, if we don't, I should hear about that, or our elders should hear about that. Like, what's happened to Jesus? We should find Jesus in the scripture. And I expect you to keep me accountable to that as your pastor. That's what Paul did. Well, that's actually what Jesus did. Jesus opened the books, opened the scriptures on the road to Emmaus, and what did he do? He showed how they pointed to himself. It was the best seminary course that ever took place. He opened it and it proved. We welcome it as this one unified story, made up of lots of smaller stories, of course, and smaller characters over thousands of years of history, but this overarching story that tells of the creation and the fall and the redemption of the world through Christ, and then someday the complete restoration of all things through Jesus. That's the big story. That's the story you were placed into by God at this season of, t- of history, at this time, and at this place even. God puts you here. Remember our Genesis series. Week after week, we would take the text and the story of Genesis and we would take it to Christ, take it to the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that every single verse of the Old Testament is specifically speaking of Jesus, but it does mean his person and his work are the central theme of the Bible. As Brian Chappell, who was a, a seminary and preaching professor, he put it in a Q&A he was doing with another preaching professor, Haddon Robbins, that said about this idea of the story of Jesus through the Bible. He said, the question to ask is, to any text or passage, is where is grace evident in the passage? How is God revealing his provision for humanity in a rescue they cannot provide for themselves? Somewhere that's going to be in the text, he said. God is saying, I'm providing what these people cannot provide for themselves. And in that sense, a grace principle is being shown that we can say has its fullest, fullest revelation in what Christ has done. Do you, do you see what he's saying there? Every expository, which means explain, expository sermon, when we read the text or when we talk in growth groups or DNA groups, when we, when we have Bible studies, we need to make sure we get to Christ. Make sure we get there. If we don't get to Christ, we don't welcome the word, receive the word, the way Jesus did, the way Paul did, the way the Thessalonians did, the way we are meant to receive it. 
As Jesus is the central figure and God's redeeming grace, we saw that so much in Genesis too, didn't we? God provided all over the place for men and women with a rescue they couldn't provide for themselves countless times. So we welcome it as the story of Jesus the Messiah. Here's a third way under question one. We receive it in both mind and our heart. We receive it in both mind and heart. I think we hopefully probably all know that there's a difference between just receiving the word as objective truth and and then thinking, well, what should I do about it? What should we do about it? If this is true, so what for my life? So what for our church corporate life together? What do we do about it? Our DNA groups have been running. You've heard maybe this mentioned them. We've talked about it a couple times, but they've sort of been running underground. They haven't been announced to the entire church. They haven't, there hasn't been an open call. Come and jump in a DNA group. They've sort of been running as pilot underground groups, and they're built around this model of receiving the word in head and, and in heart and life and in our mind through this little acronym, DNA. DNA, which is what we're made up of, right? The building blocks of who we are. But what they are is a group of three men or women who have been meeting together over the last year, trying these groups out, where they meet over a passage they've been reading that week, and they do these three things. Discover together the truth of what the passage says about God and who he is, and then who we are in light of that. So discover that together as we talk through the scripture. Then we nurture and nurture that ongoing truth of the gospel in light of that passage, and, and we renew each other's repentance and faith in Christ and in the truth, in the gospel. And then A, we act. We disciple each other on how to act and live and speak in line with that refreshed repentance and faith and encouragement that happens in these DNA groups. It's the idea of receiving the word as the Thessalonians did, in mind and in heart, and letting it do the work it's supposed to do in your life. Jesus said, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. It's the very means through which God wants to change your life and to grow you and to shape you and mold you is his word. And that story of Jesus Christ. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. James says it this way. He says it's a sin for the person even who knows to, to do what is good and who doesn't do it. That's the difference between receiving it just in mind and heart and life and actions and and attitudes down to the core of who you are. But this is the challenge of discipleship, isn't it? (laughs) You think about your daily life now. How many times do we know, we know something is wrong and yet we still find ourselves doing it? Paul wrestled with that. He said, I know the good I'm to do, and yet I find, I find this sinful desire still dwelling in me. Well, well we text when we drive, don't we? No, I, I didn't put my hand up. Never mind, not me. No, but yeah, we do those kind of things. We know we're not supposed to, yet we text when we drive. We hear hurtful words coming out of our mouths, and as we're saying them, we've got this internal dialogue going, no, I shouldn't say that, but it comes out anyways, doesn't it? We know that. We do all kinds of things that we know are destructive. 
and yet we still find ourselves doing them. The word is to be received where we line up with what we know to be consistent with our lives. It takes a conscious awareness. It takes hard work, actually. Our justification, our salvation comes from Christ's free gift alone and to us. And yet as we grow our sanctification, we have a direct impact upon that. Sanctify them in your truth, Father. Your word is truth. We can receive it mentally, but also do something about it. It's why we focused so much in our message last week on vulnerability. This idea of being real, vulnerable. Um, It's a cliche, authentic, I know, but that's kind of a a good word for it. To be real. If you didn't listen to that message, go back and listen to it this week. You can find it on our Church Center app or on our website. It's why we focus so much on vulnerability because if we're not willing to be real with what we're dealing with, where we're struggling with our life lining up with what we know the word to say, if we're not being real about that, how will we ever change as a community and as individuals part of that community. When we embrace it internally, it will do the work of God. The writer of Hebrews says as well, the word of God is living. It's active. Kind of sounds like Martin Luther, the word does the work. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It goes down to the deepest parts of who we are. It goes down and does a great work in our hearts and lives. But we can ignore it, can't we? We can push it to the side. We can stop reading our Bible. We can stop attending a growth group or a Bible study. We can stop. We can take ourselves out of a place where the word is being shared and opened. But we do a great danger and disservice to ourselves if we do that. So how do we welcome it? As a true word of God, as the word of Jesus the Messiah, and letting it change our heart and mind. That's our first question. How do we welcome it? That's how we do it. Our second question is this. How will then, once we welcome it, how will the word change us? How will the word change us? And this is really important. Because receiving the word isn't just about the propositional truth claims or moral claims, although those are important. It's not less than that. It's not less than that. And in fact, if you think about the moral claims of Christianity, um, you know, and actually the moral claims of most of the world's religions, it's really surprising, but you find a really big overlap between the morals or the, the, the moral law or what is right and wrong, you find a really big overlap between most of the world's religions. A lot of agreement there, actually. A ton of agreement. It's kind of surprising. So how the word changes us then is, is something for us to really look at as Christians and think about. Because it's not less than that, receiving those morals or truth objective claims, because those are valuable and important. And Christianity is exclusive in its truth claims. Christ is the only way. He says it himself. And I would say it's even more than memorizing a few verses, which is important too. We should be doing that, hiding God's word in our heart, memorizing it, knowing it. In fact, that's what you had to do before you had a written copy of it, right? 
We're blessed by that, but maybe also hindered by that because we can pick it up anywhere. And even now on our phone, anywhere you go, you've got the word, which is great, but it also means it's probably not as stored internally and in our mind as it used to be. How will the word change us? I think a better way to put it is, is realizing this idea that when you become a follower of Christ, you're entering into that big story we talked about, that giant overarching narrative of what God is doing in the redemption of this world and people in this world. You're entering into a story that's not just yours. It's God's mission. It's God's kingdom, you might say. It's entering into this redemptive plan. And, and, and then what's your part in it? What's your part in that big mission that God is doing in the world? Because if you're a follower of Christ, you have a part. If you're a Bethany church, you have a gift and a role to play and to be part of that. That story, as we realize we're entering into God's redemption plan for history, when we realize we're entering into that, what does it do then? It forms and shapes our own story of how to live of how to define what's the good life for a human, of how to define what's the purpose for living. And that story forms our story as here's our first response, how it will change us. By imitation, we imitate the pattern of Jesus that we see in the word, but also that we see in others' lives as we live our lives out in the local church in front of each other. That's why being part of a body is so important. We're creatures of imitation. That's kind of what we do, which means that at every given moment, with every decision you make or word you speak, do you realize you're modeling something for someone? That's kind of a scary thought, actually. But every moment of every day, you're modeling for someone a pattern to imitate. That's an interesting question to think about. And, and as you model something, is it something good that people should imitate? Or your kids or your neighbor or your coworkers or... Others at Bethany? Not always, right? But that story that we realize we've entered into of God's great redemption of the world is the place where we find those patterns of, of Christ and what he valued, and Christ and what he loved, and Christ and what he did. And therefore, we imitate and model, hopefully after that. Well, here's one way the, the word will change us when we receive its grand story. I want to talk about it for a minute because it's so important. This is so important. Who, here's a question for you. Who is forming the story of your world? Who's informing the story like, of your world, of what, what you do day to day and why you live and why you work and how you interact with people and family and friends? Who's shaping your view of what it means to live as a full human being? Somebody is, and probably maybe multiple places. Well, here's another question. What stories have you and I bought into and imitated then we don't even realize? And maybe they're not the biblical gospel story, and maybe they're even antithetical to it. What's the story in which you believe you're living? I think something COVID did is it kind of came along and it it, it revealed to us other stories we were living. Some of us, as we had a lot of the personal interaction taken away for a, a, a season, for some of us it showed the shallowness of our souls. 
the flimsiness of our relationships for some of us and that maybe we are not as durable as we thought and believed we were. One of the things that I think contributed to that in these last few years I want to talk about for a minute as sort of an application of this receiving the word of God and his story against others is technology. How has technology shaped you or your life or our stories? And even I would say for our world, especially in the last 10 years, has become the dominating narrative of why we're here, our purpose, why we exist. It didn't start in the last 10 years. It said the last 500 years we've been living with this intensifying belief that at the end of the day, I'm the master of my destiny. It's been going on for about 500 years, give or take. Before that, that would not have even been a thought in people's mind, really. But the last 500 years or so, this intensifying belief that I'm the master of my destiny. I decide what happens. I decide where I go. I decide what I do. I decide this. I decide that. And we've been telling ourselves that story. Our culture's been telling us that story. The real stories we've imbibed and taken in. And technology has feeded into that in incredible ways. And we've even created, created technologies to bolster up that story that you are the master of your life. You're the master of your, of your destiny. Let's think of social media for just a moment. One of the first ways... It works against, and now today, hear me, I'm not saying you shouldn't use any of this. I'm not saying technology is inherently bad. But as you introduce any species or anything into any ecosystem, it doesn't always have some kind of impact. When you introduce something into a forest or a stream or a, a, a fertilizer into the ground, it impacts it, doesn't it? So while technology might be somewhat neutral or not inherently evil, it's going to impact us as we've introduced it to our ecosystem, haven't we? Everywhere. And so social media. Oh, here's one of the first ways it works against forming a biblical community. It isolates us, which COVID did as well, didn't it? We've come back from that in this last couple of years or year and a half, but it, it isolates us. I mean, think about this. Do you throw um, social media parties where you all get together and kind of scroll through somebody's Facebook feed together? If you do, we need to talk, because that's kind of weird, but and maybe a little creepy, actually. But no, we, we get the point, though, don't we? We don't do that. It isolates us. And instead of being together, now we're off on our screens, our phones, our tablets, our laptops. And us doing that, whether we realize it or not, teaches us a story about what it means to be human. I was driving to church this last, last week, and I uh, was, drove by a bus stop, and there were eight kids sitting on a, um, and this isn't a pick on kids, because they're learning it from adults, so they were, they were sitting on a little brick wall, and all eight of them, heads were down. You've seen that. You've been part of that. <laughs> all eight of them, heads were down. Not one child was speaking to another child. And maybe they were, you know, texting or messaging, direct messaging on social media, but they were all doing that. I was going to bring some pictures up. I didn't today, but maybe in the coming weeks I will. But did you see those photos that this photographer took where he took pictures of people in their everyday life with their devices, and then he, he uh, photoshopped the devices out? It looked, it looked like people were, like, bowing to their phones. or like well, It just was really bizarre, really strange. That story works directly against the biblical call of community. 
of life together. Like I said, we're off on our screens, our phones, our tablets, and I'm the master of my own destiny. I scroll what I want. I X out of what I want. I don't want. I don't like what I don't like. I like what I like, what I want, right? I create the identity one. I self-identify. Over time, that shapes and forms a people. I think it's even shaped how we come to define what love is in our culture. To love and to be kind, it's now about likes, thumbs up, and hearts, right? When we've all kind of bought into this story that likes and hearts and shares and followers what's mattered, that's how you begin to feel affirmed and loved. And the statistics on youth anxiety and lives undone by the lack of likes and thumbs up and hearts that people have gotten, it proves that we're shaping and molding a whole generation to, to see that this is how you find your worth. This is how you find your identity. So what do you do when the gospel story says this? If your brother sins against you, go ahead and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. How does that gospel story fit into this story? They don't fit well together. Or how about if you disagree with someone's story of the world? Wait, you're, you're not hitting my like button. You're not hitting my like button? Do you see the, the, the stories we've bought into? This is just one. This is just one. We could talk about others of the stories of fame, wealth, and power that our culture gives us. And then COVID came along, and what it did was it, it took that little remaining social interaction we had left and it had been increasingly shrinking. And it took that away from us. It kind of ripped the cover off this, this whole sham narrative. That story we've bought into. Or this other story that technology, I think, has made us believe. How many of you feel the pressure or have in the last few years? The story that what it means to be human is to somehow stay on top of this 24-hour news cycle. Have you felt that pressure? I have. That, that, that pressure that's so endlessly at our fingertips, every story when it happens. I mean, who made us believe that story, that it's a good thing to actually even be aware of every news story? And that I can even manage that much information. And that, that would actually be good for me. I'm not saying be ignorant. I'm not saying we shouldn't know what's going on in the world. We should. But the vast amounts and quantity of information we've been trying to absorb and take in over these last years... Is that good for us? I mean, how many times a day can I check my, um, my chosen news source and think they're going to update the stories? You do that? How many times a day? And does God's word even teach us that that's a good story? That we should be able to grasp and contain as finite creatures all the information that's thrown at us? That does something to us. Like information fatigue. Have you felt that in the last five years? Do you see what I'm doing here? I'm not saying technology is inherently bad. And I'm not just kind of truly hit like a middle-aged, grumpy, crabby phase either. It's not what I'm doing here. I hope what I'm doing is kind of ripping the veil off our eyes a little bit this morning and showing us there are ways that we're imitating stories that don't line up a lot of times with the gospel call on our life and what it means to live in the church as Paul spoke the Thessalonians. We're imitating some story. Someone's teaching us about what it means to be human. I mean, we used to live in a culture, do you remember this, when church meant Sunday morning, Sunday night, and then 
Wednesday night, and we liked it, believe it or not. We actually liked it. Are you old enough to remember those days? I am. And it's not just that we got out of the habit, we bought into another story. We bought into another story. So we begin to imitate what we feed ourselves with, and sometimes we don't even know it. Paul in verse 14, he commends the church, he commends the church there in, in modern-day Greece, Thessalonica, and he says that they were imitating the churches in Judea. He commends them for that imitation. Remember, we're always imitating someone, we're always modeling for someone. He says, you've imitated those churches in Judea. How'd they do that? They didn't know those churches. Probably none of them had ever traveled outside of Greece and went to the area around Jerusalem and to see those early churches. None of them, probably. They didn't know those churches and never visited them. So how did they imitate them? They were imitators because they followed the same word and the same Savior. That's how. They're modeling their lives after Christ and his story and what he values and what he loves, and that is what shaped their lives and their community and their local church. We imitate the pattern of Jesus and the word and others in life. So what does it mean then? What does it mean then to live fully human in Christ's story, in the redeeming of the world, the one we're supposed to imitate? Well, some of the things Paul's been telling them already and some other things, places, or other truths we get from the word, Jesus' story is this. So we are deeply dependent on others and God to make meaning out of our life. We can't do it alone. Jesus' story is that we're deeply in need of a Savior to rescue us. Jesus' story is that rather than looking at scrolling on screens or keeping up with the latest news cycle, being human means being with God's people and in fellowship. That's Jesus' story as we receive his word together. I want to encourage us as we're in this kind of post-COVID world now to open your home. Open your home. When was the last time you just kind of grabbed a, a few couples at church or maybe some people who don't have local family around and just said, come over for a meal? It doesn't have to be impressive. It could be pizzas for all, right? Most people care, right? Open your home. Be together with God's people. Find some you don't know here and say, let's invite a couple couples over that we think might get along. That's God's story. That is God's story. That's not news cycle social media story, but that's God's story. Open your home. Here's another one. Jesus' story is that he's the master of your destiny, not you. Jesus' story is that it's really good to linger for a long time at long meals with people you love, with good food and drink, and be together. That's his story. How many times do we see Jesus eating and drinking for a long time with people? So long that he had to like make meals come out of nothing because he was there so long. I mean, that's what he does. He gets and sits down with people and eats. There must be something important to that, sharing a meal together in, in Jesus' story. Here's another one. Jesus' story is that humanity can't harness technology to overcome all pain, but pain is actually the means to growth. That's not the story technology teaches us. Jesus' story means sometimes loving someone means confronting sin and not hitting the thumbs up button. That's a different story, isn't it? Jesus' story is that you can't control all of your life and you don't need to because he does. Totally different story. 
And Jesus' story is that there aren't lots of stories in this world of what it means to be truly human. Only one, a follower of Christ. Jesus' story is that to follow him means you will suffer, but it'll actually be for your benefit. And here's the best to hear today. Jesus' story is that he's coming back. That's his story. If we truly receive the word, we will begin to imitate it in what we value, in what we do, in what we describe as the good life of a Christian in Canby at Bethany Church. The second way the word changes us is this changes our affections and allegiances. In, in our context, how did Paul know the Thessalonians had received the word? How did he know this? He hadn't gone back. He had Timothy revisit and tell him about the church. How did he know this? Uh, look at verse oh, 14 of chapter 2 there. He said, says there, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. How? For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. He says, because you suffered for your beliefs, for what you hold to, the Christ you're following, you suffer from your own countrymen, as the Christ-following disciples did in Judea, you followed, you suffered. That's how I know you received the word. That's how I know you've truly taken it in. We said this last week, I think, you don't suffer for something you don't believe in, do you? You for sure don't die for something you don't truly believe in. They were willing to suffer for him. Because of that, he says, I know, because that's how you imitated them. I see you suffering for your faith. How's that possible? Their new identity, their new purpose, their new meaning, their new life, their new story, whatever you want to call it, was with Christ and his people. And they were willing to suffer for it. Are we willing? Are you willing? Be taken it and let the work go so deep to the marrow of your bones, as Hebrews said, that you're willing to follow this Christ wherever he takes you. To be a Christian in these early years, you know this, was to love Jesus at maybe the expense of your life. And still is, we should not miss that, and still is in some parts of the world today. Like Paul, they'd come to have their affections, their, their, their heart, their allegiances, what they were really truly committed to. They'd had them changed by the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so like Paul, they'd come to no longer count their lives truly to be any value in and of itself. He said in Philippians, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That is a man whose affections, whose allegiances have changed. So how do we apply this message? I, I mean, it, it's fair, I think fairly simple, actually. I mean, you, you, you hit the like button on anything that brings more word and more people into your life. That's how we apply it. You find places where you can be around God's people more or others that don't know him and open that word and live in it and speak it and say it. If you want to grow and change and make a difference in life, get into as many situations as you can where you center around the word with people who would challenge you 
That's how we apply it. I showed this video a while back. I think one time. It's a short one, but I, it fits so well. I want to show it one more time to us. I, what, would, what would it be like if we could receive the word this way as these Chinese Christians did the first time they ever got a Bible? Let's take a look at it. It's grainy, and I couldn't find any better quality of that because just one missionary happened to be there in that moment when they opened a box of Bibles. They didn't have any. They didn't have five in their house on the shelves. But you saw the joy. You sense that, don't you? This is what we need. This is what you need. You know who else received the word that way? Jesus, and we'll close with his words. Here's what he said. Men shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being so kind to give us your word, to allow it to have been written and recorded and, and, sh- and saved and protected and transmitted and, and, and copied through history so that we could get in our hands your true word. Lord, may we be a people that receives it, not only in head but in heart, and may it shape our story of how we view what it means to be a human on your creation, your planet, Lord. May that happen at Bethany Church more and more, I pray. We all pray it. In Christ's name, amen.